Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, October 15th, 2019. My name is Ben Pearson, I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Slash Film Writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, so let's jump into the news today. Let's just get started with uh, a story that broke, I guess this was yesterday afternoon, maybe yesterday evening, uh, about The Batman, Matt Reeves' new movie. Chris, this this film has found uh, one of its stars. Who has joined the cast of The Batman? Uh, yes, yeah, Zoe Kravitz is going to play Catwoman slash Selena Kyle in The Batman, which is pretty cool. And it's also, um, I didn't realize this when the story broke, but... It's actually the second time she's played the character because she voiced Catwoman in the Lego Batman movie. So there you go. Zoe Kravitz is going to make a career out of playing Catwoman. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So what do we know officially about this movie at this point in terms of casting? We know Robert Pattinson is in it as Batman, right? But there have been right. a lot of like other rumors and stuff. What What is um, finalized, I guess, at this point? Do we know? I'm The only thing that seems to be finalized is... Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz. Um, Jeffrey Wright and Jonah Hill are both listed as in talks still. Uh, Jeffrey Wright would play Commissioner Gordon, and we're still not 100% clear on who Jonah Hill is playing. Um, the the rumor is he, he's going to play the Riddler if he gets into the film. So, um, you know, that's something to consider. We don't really know what this film is going to be about. We do know it's not going to be yet another origin story, even though, you know, it's a new Batman. It's not going to do the whole, you know, the Wayne's get shot in the alley thing. Again. It's mm-hmm. going, Whoa, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to pick up sort of where Batman is already, I guess, established in his career. And it's, um, you know, based on what Matt Reeves has said in the past, it's going to be a bit of more of like a, a personal sort of story. It's, so I guess it's kind of like a character study about Batman, which could be cool. I guess we'll see how it works out. And Reeves actually posted, uh, I think it was a gif of Zoe Kravitz. So this is not just like, um, you know, some rumbling about a casting list. This does appear to be, you know, a, an official sort of finalized thing. Um, right. Brad, what do you make of Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman? Are you excited about that casting decision? Yeah, I mean, she's a fantastic actress. She was great in Mad Max Fury Road. And I think that she's She's been on the rise for a while because she's not a huge star yet, but I think that she, um, you know, will really stand out in a movie like this with a role like Catwoman. Uh, she's got she's got kind of this just general attitude about her. I think that will um, bring something a little more refreshing to Catwoman. And Chris, you mentioned that you were excited about this casting. Why is that? What what do you like about Zoe Kravitz as a as a performer? I mean, pretty much, you know, the same reasons Brad just said. I mean, I just really like her as an actress and. It's just cool casting. It's it's not, um, you know, even though I like Zoe Kravitz, this wouldn't have been like the first choice that comes to mind. But it's one of those casting decisions where when you see it, it's like, oh, that's perfect. And I like casting like that. So I'm very interested to see what she does with this part. All right. So from one superhero movie to another, let's talk. Let's go from the Batman to Venom 2, uh, which has gotten a second villain. Brad, did did the Spider-Man movies learn nothing about adding too many villains to their, their films? What's going on here? Of course, they, they didn't learn anything whatsoever. Um, so we already knew that Carnage was going to be a big part of Venom 2 because of the uh, very subtle credit scene that happened in uh, after Venom with Woody Harrelson and his Ronald McDonald wig uh, as Cletus Cassidy, who becomes Carnage. 
But there will be another villain in Venom 2 that will be alongside Carnage, uh, and that is Shriek. Uh, this is a, a female villain. Uh, she's a former drug dealer named Frances Barrison, who becomes a supervillain after severe trauma awakens her latent mutant powers. Uh, in the comics, she has the power of sonic energy blasts, flight, and an ability to bring out dark and violent emotions in others. Uh, she's frequently paired with Carnage. Uh, there, there's actually a, a love story between them, and she's his closest accomplice throughout the comics as well. Uh, so this sounds like it could be interesting, because we've never really seen a supervillain uh, team that was also a couple, as far as I can remember. Maybe the closest thing would have been, like, the weird sexual tension between Mystique and Magneto in the X-Men franchise. Um, and then we obviously we had... Uh, we had, you know, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but they were brother and sister. Mm -hmm. So I, are there any other, have there, has there been a supervillain couple? Huh. Um, maybe uh, Uma Thurman and Bane and Batman and Robin? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> oh man, that's good. Uh, um, so yeah, so this, I think this could be interesting. Um, you know, so, sometimes two villains can, can work. Uh, I think once you start doing more than that, it's when things get a little bit crazy. Uh, but we also don't really know what the story is for Venom 2 yet. Uh, so it's, we're kind of still in the dark in that regard. So we don't really know what to expect. So I have to admit to you guys, I still have not seen the first Venom movie. But um, I, I know both of you did. And uh, Chris, I just want to toss it to you for a second. Like, Do you think that a character like Shriek, who has the ability to blast energy, sonic energy and fly, is something that's going to jive well with you know what they what they've got going on uh with like i guess the powers that they've established uh, cinematically in the first venom like do you think that that is going to be uh i don't know what do you what do you make with the potential inconsistency there i mean venom is really stupid so i could see it working this is a stupid thing <laughs> uh brad what about you I, I know you follow all the the superheroes and superpowers stuff pretty closely so carnage obviously is like a a pretty wild character so it, just the fact that he's going to be in it in a, in a major role sort of indicates that this movie is going to be taking it up a notch but what do you make of the addition of shriek to this yeah i mean i'm not sure i i'd be willing to bet that they're going to do something different with their origin story because at this point they haven't really established um the idea of mutant powers being latent in people and suddenly being awakened so I, I feel like maybe they'll do it a little bit of a different origin story. Maybe there's, you know, another symbiote that comes into contact with, uh, you know, whoever. Maybe it'll be Cletus's, uh, she'll already be Cletus's girlfriend at this point. And so then, then they become a team. Maybe there is, like, some symbiote that's been experimented on. And so that's what gives her much different powers than what was shown uh, that the symbiotes can do in the first Venom. Uh, I think there's definitely plenty of ways that they can explain it. As for... Whether or not you know it, it fits within the universe, we'll see. But like like Chris said, Venom was a big dumb movie, so anything can happen. <laughs> and, um, and oh, go ahead, guys! I have to interrupt. We have late breaking news here oh, on the Slash no. Film Podcast. <laughs> uh, this is going to sound like I'm making this up, but this is absolutely 100% true. Neil Patrick Harris has joined the cast of Matrix Four, and that's the story. Oh, boy. Wait, wait, it's, wait! It's a secret role, apparently. Okay, so we don't know anything about who he's going to be. Wait, he's he's obviously playing young Morpheus, right? Yes, he is. He's young Morpheus. <laughs> and he's um, the same character from Starship Troopers. Ooh, that'd be good. That'd be a big twist. So, uh, yes, that's where we are right now. 
You know, Patrick Harris, Matrix 4. So they're really, I'm, I'm scanning the story as we speak. There really aren't any roles, or, or any details, rather, about his role. It just says they couldn't confirm what role he's going to be playing, and plot details oh, you know are what? currently he, unknown. I figured it out. He's going to play the adult version of that boy who bent the spoon <laughs> in the first movie. Because he likes magic, and that's sort of like a magic trick. That's yeah. my guess. Oh, that, yeah. I, I love See? that. I love that. That's I, great. I, put, I just put more thought into that than anyone involved with the movie, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we uh, anxiously await um, The Matrix 4. I mean, okay, so so let's put the, uh, the inherent ridiculousness of that aside for just a second. And think about uh, Neil Patrick Harris as an actor. Like, do you guys... Uh, obviously he was famous for Doogie Howser and then for what, uh, I don't know, 10 years or something on how I met your mother. And that's like how most of America, um, and don't kno- forget Harold and Kumar. right, right. Knows him and sort of immediately associates him with these comedic roles. Do you think that he has what it takes to, um, I guess appear in what we assume would be a more straightforward, like not quite as comedic, uh, role in a movie like this, like, uh, based on uh, some of the stuff that you guys have seen him in? I do because he is actually, even though he had, he doesn't do a lot. Like you were just saying, he actually has a really good and like creepy turn in gone girl where he plays uh, Rosamund Pike's like ex boyfriend. And he's just like this really creepy weirdo. And he doesn't, and like, that's a totally straightforward performance. Like he doesn't add humor to it at all. And he's like really good at it. And I feel like he's got like a lot of untapped potential that, casting agents don't really think of just because he's so known for how I bet your mother and something like that. So I do actually think he's got what it takes to do something dramatic, given that he might be playing a dramatic character. Yeah. Plus, I, th- I think, I think he could be dramatic and also still be funny. I mean, if, if you think of mov- about movies like, uh, you know, alien and stuff like that, there's, there's usually always one crew member who's kind of a smart ass, but they still play it pretty, pretty grounded. So I think that that's, that's possibly the kind of character he could be playing in the matrix as well. I hope he's just raving out in Zion and we, he never doesn't even have a speaking line. He is just like a featured extra who is just going hard on the dance floor there, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what <laughs> happens there. Um, all right, Brad, let's move on to uh, Martin Scorsese. Who's uh, I guess generated a lot of, controversy and headlines and uh, discussion over the past couple weeks with his talks about uh, superhero movies and and whether he considers them cinema. I think we had had a big um, The Great Debate episode about that between Chris and Peter on an earlier episode of Slash Film Daily. Uh, Marty's out there still talking. So what's he saying about superhero movies now, Brad? Yeah, well, Marty is basically doubling down on what he said before, and he's he's starting to be I don't know, a little more um, mean about it, I guess you could say, uh, and, and a little bit short-sighted, I think, in, in my opinion. Uh, because while, while I did understand and partially agree with what Scorsese initially said, especially because it's, it really is just his own personal opinion about what he considers cinema, uh, it, it, is, it does feel like he's starting to become more critical of them in a way that you know people could, uh, as far as filmmakers are concerned anyway, take offense to. Uh, in this, in a recent thing that he he was talking at the BFI London Film Festival after a screening of The Irishman, the discussion came around to his recent comments, and he basically reiterated the same thing, where he talked about superheroes, and he said, uh, "quote It's not cinema; it's something else. We shouldn't be invaded by it. We need cinemas to step up and show films that are narrative films." Now, the language he's using is 
kind of, you know... <laughs> Pretty charged. <laughs> yeah, it's very incendiary. You know, using a word like invaded, I mean, it's like, oh, they're taking over everything. And I know to some people who maybe aren't superhero movie fans, it might seem like that simply because they're so popular. But there are also dozens of movies released every month that aren't superhero movies. And the big problem is that people just aren't turning out to see them. People are going to see movies that they want to see on a big screen with a, a big sound system. And they're not going to see the kind of, you know, quiet, dramatic movies that Scorsese usually makes. Uh, and the kind of quote-unquote narrative films that he thinks people should be seeing. Um, and he, he does comment on that a little bit, but in his commentary, I feel like you you realize that the problem really he shouldn't have is with superheroes, because he what he says is, he continues by saying, quote, theaters have become amusement parks. That is all fine and good, but don't invade everything else in that sense. That is fine and good for those who enjoy that type of film, and by the way, knowing what goes into them now, I admire what they do. It's not my kind of thing. It simply is not. It's creating another kind of audience that thinks cinema is that so really i think his problem shouldn't be with superhero movies but rather a studios that aren't really taking risks on you know mid-budget adult dramas that scorsese used to make uh granted the irishman is a movie that's like around 160 million dollars for a budget which is pretty close to a superhero movie budget mm -hmm. um but these studios also aren't marketing you know these other kinds of movies as much as they are blockbusters and it's because you know they're it's a risk to spend that kind of money on those movies when they already can tell audiences probably aren't going to turn out to see them. And at the end of the day, you're talking about audiences who have pretty much already made up their mind about what they're going to spend their money on. Like, sure, marketing helps, you know, to convince certain people to see movies from time to time. But if there are people who already don't like superhero movies and they want to see more of the kind of films that Scorsese wants to see, but there are also audiences who, you know, w will go see these narrative films no matter what and also see superhero films. So it's uh, really, I think it's a problem that the studio needs to take more risks and make a variety of uh, different movies. They need to market those movies more. I need to release them in more than, you know, a thousand screens across the United States so that people actually have a chance to go see them without driving an hour to, you know, to a major city to be able to catch them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about like um, foundational issues in the movie going landscape here so this is not something that has like an easy snap your fingers and and solve it sort of solution but um chris i'm wondering as like the uh the uh, you know the foremost uh, scorsese fan expert on on the slash film staff what do you make of these comments any uh any differences here between the mindset that he sort of espoused uh, a week ago or so so it, it it does sound harsher but here's my take on this Martin Scorsese spent like the last few years putting together this huge epic movie that he's put his heart and soul into. It's one of his best movies ever made that he's ever made. It's going to have people talking. It reunites him with actors he's worked with in the past. And all anyone wants to ask him about is Marvel movies. And I feel like if I were him and I kept showing up to press conferences and people kept saying, well, what about Marvel movies? I too would be like, Jesus Christ, stop asking me about these movies. I don't want to talk about them. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of journalists are doing this pretty much intentionally now because they know he's going to respond like this and they know that's going to get clicks. And I get that because clicks are money and that's how we all stay in this business. But it's really getting to the point where it's like, we know what he thinks. We know he does not like these movies. Why keep asking him at this point? Yeah, it's not, I guess it's not really adding much to the conversation if he's just, you know, iterating on ideas that he's already <laughs> said in the past. If everybody knows where he stands, then there's no point in getting like a fresh quote about it. But 
uh yeah and i mean the thing about the narrative films though like i would just say i mean he's uh martin scorsese if you're listening uh 70 something year old man listening to slash film daily um i mean maybe just choose your words a bit more carefully there because it seems like that's that's the thing and i think peter too like in in your big great debate thing that's where he sort of uh drew a line i think both of you like were mostly on the same page about like um you know, of course, that this is this guy's opinion, and he's certainly entitled to it, and has proven himself a master of the genre or of the the um, format and all of that kind of stuff. That, those are like unquestionable uh, truisms. But the um, I, I think where Peter sort of came down was like using those words, like this is not cinema, and that superhero movies are not narrative films. Like the the distinctions there, I think, are where a lot of people are probably going to get you know held up and and sort of um, bothered by some of this language, but. Uh, in any case, let's move on and talk about more Marvel-related things. Let's talk about the uh, Disney's Avengers ride, uh, which is coming to, I think, Disneyland Paris and Disney California Adventure sometime in the next couple of years. Um, Brad, you and, and me and I think Jacob talked about this around the time of D23. Um, we didn't really know much about this Avengers-themed ride. We knew it was going to be like an e-ticket ride, like one of uh, Disney's sort of big... Um, not a roller coaster, but roller coaster esque rides, you know, one of their top tier sort of attractions. And now a little bit more information about this has come out. And I'm not going to get it, you know, super into this because Peter's the theme park guy, but I, I do think it's interesting because one of the Imagineers who worked on the ride was recently asked to describe the ride system of this Avengers ride. And he said that it's going to be, quote, something that we've never seen before. And that's kind of interesting because I think, um, you know, you can see in like some concept art that we have up on the site that, uh, the storyline of this Avengers ride is basically you go in to Avengers headquarters and you board the Quinjet to go on a mission with the team and you're equipped with some sort of technology that's offered by the Avengers members, but that protection and technology is, is quickly ripped away, presumably by the enemies who are going to be serving as like the the villains of this ride. And then we go on what they're calling an individual flight experience. Um which I, I don't know if I've seen before, and that sort of uh, tracks with these quotes about how the ride system is going to be something unlike anything we've seen before, because in these the pieces of concept art, you've got what looks like an individual chair sort of floating next to somebody else's chair, but not in a straight line attached to the same, uh, I don't know, like parallel bar system like you would for something like Soren, um, because somebody specifically asked if this Imagineer could compare this ride system to Soren or something like a Flight of Passage. And he said it's going to be completely unique, something we've never ever seen before. Um, and because of the, the scale here, uh, it, it's just going to be, I don't know, like the, the idea of, of Disney um, innovating in the theme park space is not uh, groundbreaking, but it is interesting to me that this Avengers attraction could be a different type of ride than anything that we've ever seen before. So uh, I just thought that was worth mentioning. Um, I guess since we're talking about theme park related stuff, Brad, we learned some stuff about Universal Studios and the lands that they have coming up. What what did we learn recently? Yes, Universal Studios is opening a new theme park in Beijing, uh, and they have revealed the seven lands that will make up the uh, entirety of the theme park. Some of them are familiar uh, things that have been a part of Universal Studios in Orlando and California for a while, but there are some new ones that are first-time 
properties being expanded into their own, you know, lands at a theme park. So there, the seven lands will be Kung Fu Panda, Land of Awesomeness, Transformers, Metro Base, Minion Land, The Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Jurassic World, Isla Nublar, Hollywood Boulevard, and Water World. That's right, Water World, the box office bomb, is getting its own theme park area at Universal Studios Beijing. What? <laughs> yeah. There's going to be now. Obviously, the Waterworld stunt show has been around for a while, but this the stunt show itself is being expanded to fill a whole section of the theme park somehow, which is crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, I would think that that kind of stunt show would be, you know, in in a in a sane world that would be replaced with or, or updated with a totally new piece of intellectual property. Why on earth would they double down on Waterworld? That's not even a movie that like people really talk about i mean i guess people were talking about it since it's been what there's been like some anniversaries of it recently i think it, it celebrated its 20th anniversary not too long ago but uh, water from, world from what, I, from what i understand the stunt show is fantastic you know whether you like the movie or not apparently it's a very cool show so maybe they just figured out a way to expand you know the the spirit of that show you know into a theme park land and maybe maybe it'll even have you know some like water themed, you know, attractions or in uh, like w- almost like a water park in a way. I don't know. Okay. All right. So there's your uh, your theme park bits for the day. In the meantime, let's move on to arguably the biggest piece of news today, which is that uh, Kevin Feige has become the chief creative officer at Marvel. So now he's going to be overseeing the film, TV, and publishing divisions of the company, and this is a, a pretty big deal. We've brought on uh, slash film managing editor Jacob Hall to talk about this. Jacob, how's it going? It's going okay. Uh, This is very interesting news, man. Yeah, so, you know, Feige was the president of Marvel Studios. Historically, he's been in charge of basically just the film stuff. I mean, obviously, he we know that he's been, uh, I guess, about to dip his toe into the TV waters with the Disney Plus uh, Marvel shows like Loki and Moon Knight and WandaVision and all that kind of stuff. But now the company is being restructured, and Kevin uh, Kevin Feige's powers are going to be growing substantially. So what's happening is Marvel TV is shifting under the Marvel Studios umbrella, and Marvel Family Entertainment, which is like an animation branch of the company, is also shifting there. And all of the, um, I guess, heads of the different divisions of the company are going to be reporting directly to Kevin Feige now. So this is a major deal for a bunch of different reasons. And, and Jacob, I know you're like much more hooked into the comics world than probably any of the other uh, members of this podcast are. So what do you make of this announcement? What do you think this means for the future of Marvel and, and maybe like the uh, ripple effects that this could have um, elsewhere? Uh, I know we tend to like have conversations about whether or not Disney being powerful is a good thing. If superhero cinema is taking over. Uh, but, I believe from the bottom of my heart that Kevin Feige puts more good into Hollywood than bad. I think people have brought the wrong lessons because uh, under his watch, Marvel Studios has been incredibly successful and has produced movies that I generally really like. And he has proved himself to be a man with good creative taste. He was a guy who powered through and got movies like Black Panther and Captain Marvel made when people said that those are never going to happen. He's back to the right people in the right situations that I feel like this is a smart financial decision because Marvel Studios has thrived under his watch but also just the right decision overall for how to make Marvel a better, more effective company for 21st century audiences. And I guess, I guess the um, elephant in the room here is Ike Perlmutter, who has been running Marvel for over a decade now. And the stories out, stories out there are, are many, 
the basic gist is that he's been he's been an, always been a numbers guy at the end of the game, and he always looked in his spreadsheet and said, "Oh, women comics don't make money. Women movies don't won't make money. Movies starring non-white actors won't make money. Um, let's you know have the cheapest possible offices. Let's underpay our actors. You know, and the stories are legendary here of of, of a man who really tried to uh, make Marvel successful by putting every uh, saving as many pennies mm-hmm. as possible. Whereas Kevin Feige was like, let's put the pennies on the screen and reap the rewards. And a few years ago, uh, Kevin Feige threatened to leave Marvel after butting heads with Ike Perlmutter over Captain America's Civil War's budget. And that led to Kevin Feige being, you know, handed the, the full reins of Marvel Studios. And we saw where that went. That led to Thor Ragnarok. It led to Avengers Endgame with Captain Marvel. So let's look at the, the track record of who here has the better vision and whose vision is making money. And the answer is Kevin Feige. And you always hear stories about how, like, in the comic industry, writers want to tell creative stories. They want to, you know, latch on to characters who aren't, you know, Wolverine or Spider-Man. And under Ike Perlmutter's watch, it was a matter of, okay, which characters make money? Whereas I think Kevin Feige being in charge of comics, this could be a, like, grand open territory for writers and artists who have been, like, filling the burn under Ike Perlmutter, who need a... A leader who's going to say, "What's wild and crazy and interesting? Go for it." And I could be wrong here, but I feel like this is what Marvel's needed. It, it's this shot of energy from Marvel Studios is now being applied to television and to comics. And I genuinely believe this is going to be really, really good for Marvel. Like, say, we have another discussion on another day about you know whether or not one man becoming an uber producer over all these branches is a, a good thing or a bad thing in most situations because sometimes it's not. But a guy with his who is as canny both financially and creatively as Kevin Feige, this feels like a long time coming and the right choice. Yeah, and and I think you mentioned to me in uh, in our Slack channel before we started recording that this seems like it's putting Feige in one of those positions that we haven't seen in Hollywood in decades. You know, it, it's like he already had this sort of meteoric rise and like amazing career, but now he's kind of up there with guys like Louis B. Mayer and like Jack Warner in terms of like the sheer amount of oversight that he has over the creative uh, storytelling capacity for this massive um, branch of Disney, the, the the entirety of Marvel now, and what does this mean for the future of Marvel going forward? What does this mean for uh, Feige, you know, those, those sort of uh, persistent rumors that Feige could possibly jump ship and head to Star Wars? Like, do you think that um, Marvel giving him all of this extra control now is a way to lock him in to the Marvel world and and sort of um, hope that he doesn't uh, head to a galaxy far, far away? Well, we do know that he is producing a Star Wars film with Kathleen Kennedy over in the next few years. But uh, what's interesting here is that Ken Feige's been on the record. He was, a, he was a Star Wars kid growing up. He loved Star Wars, and Marvel was something he knew of, but was never a huge fan. And I think it's actually been beneficial here because... Maybe Marvel needs somebody who's a little bit of an outsider to march in and say what's interesting in, in not being utilized. Uh, but yeah, the, the rumors he's been, been you know planning to move Lucasfilm have been all over the place for like maybe two or three years now, and him essentially tripling down his power at Marvel suggests that either he made a decision to stay and make himself more comfortable, or someone at Disney said, "How about you stay where you are and it'll make you a very wealthy, powerful man." <laughs> uh, I'm curious to see which direction it came from, whose decision this was. But I, all, all I can think is that uh, someone at Disney looked at both the box office receipts for Avengers Endgame and looked at how satisfied 
moviegoers were with it, which is such a rare combination for a movie to be that big and for some people to be that satisfied and said, we got to keep this guy here. So I think we're in for another decade of Kevin Feige leading Marvel to making billion dollar movies that people generally really like. Yeah. Um, Brad, as the probably the biggest Star Wars fan on this episode, what is uh, what does this mean to you? Are you excited to see, because I know you're a big fan of the Marvel stuff, obviously, as well, but are you excited to see Feige sort of um, dig in his heels and stay at Marvel, or was there a part of you that was hoping that maybe he could take over at, at Lucasfilm at some point? Uh, you know, I'm... I feel like I'm kind of somewhere in the middle because I'm very excited to see what Feige has in store with, for this Star Wars movie that he's producing uh, with Lucasfilm. And I'm really interested to see what kind of, I guess, style he has outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. And I think well, it would have been cool to see uh, him maybe take over Star Wars in the same way that he has Marvel, especially knowing that he is a bigger fan of Star Wars than he is Marvel. I feel like... We like Star Wars is still in the point where they're really figuring out what they want to do, and I think it's uh, I don't know, c- kind of unfair to pull Kathleen Kennedy out of that situation, you know, even though they've had some hiccups over there, to suddenly hand it over to somebody like uh, Kevin Feige at, at this point in time. So maybe sometime down the road, but right now, I think that Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy deserve a chance to get their ducks in a row after you know, seeing kind of what fans want and what works and what didn't with their initial approach so that they can really give something, you know, that fans are looking for in the Star Wars sense. Mm. Chris, do you have any thoughts about Feige getting uh, even more power than he already had? I mean, you know me. I think people, I think one man could never have too much money, <laughs> too much power. Uh, I, you know, it's always great when one individual just gets billions and billions of dollars and unlimited power. <laughs> I mean, nothing could go wrong. There's nothing... <laughs> in that scenario that could backfire and turn into something but, bad. But so Chris, this is Chris, good. What if he's really good at it though? I mean, look, like I said, it's a great thing. <laughs> I, I love monopolies. I love conglomerates. I'm a big fan of, of money making machines. How do, you, how do you feel about synergy? It's good. Synergy is really good. I, 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 this is going to work out great. There's nothing nothing bad could happen here. <laughs> um, so, Jacob, you mentioned Ike Perlmutter earlier. Another big name that I guess uh, Feige has maybe not clashed as publicly, publicly with is uh, Jeff Loeb, who has overseen Marvel TV for several years. And what is going to happen to Marvel TV now that it's under Feige's, uh, I guess, oversight? What, what do you think is the future of the Marvel shows that that aren't like WandaVision and some of these other ones that are going to be directly tied into the MCU. Uh, with all due respect to his friends and family, Jeff Loeb sucks. Uh, <laughs> everything he makes kind of sucks. He, has, he used to be writing some pretty okay comics back in the day, but ever since he transitioned into being a TV executive, woof. Uh, so I am pleased about him possibly not having as much of a role because... I, I've never enjoyed most of the projects he's had his name on. So I'm really curious uh, if Kevin Feige lets things like Hulu's Runaways end gracefully or tries to merge it into the MCU. I mean, there were stories, it was a few weeks ago, we heard that the uh, Ghost pi- uh, Ghost Rider pilot at Hulu was not going forward. And one of the crazy ideas online was uh, Kevin Feige uh, bl- blocked it because he wants Ghost Rider for the main MCU. And so I'm starting to wonder if we're going to start seeing more of that, more of the announced, you know, Jeff Loeb backed projects start quietly disappearing, and we start seeing 
uh, him quite disappearing as well. So I guess my big question uh, is, does Jeff Loeb hang around and work under Feige, or does he move on to other pastures? Because he's been the top dog in this, in this corner for a long time, and now he, he isn't. And I think this is exactly what Marvel TV needs, because look, I watched a season two onward of Daredevil. I watched season two of Luke Cage, and I watched enough Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to know that Jeff Loeb was not the guy to be making really genuinely successful Marvel TV shows. So in my mind, uh, fire him and bring on people who know how to make good stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's not unreasonable because, you know, I, like the live action Marvel shows are aimed at me, like the, theoretically, like I'm, I'm right in their target demographic of people that love the Marvel movies, but I could not uh, connect or engage with any of the Marvel shows that have been produced under Jeff Loeb. And I think there's just a drastic difference in quality there. I think I've, I've given a couple of those shows a little bit of a shot, like watched like one episode of a couple of them and then just immediately checked out because it just wasn't up to the same standard. And, and you know, say what you will about, about Feige and the power that he has now, but the man has standards and is able to, uh, to generate some pretty damn compelling stories uh on the big and small screen so i think um i think this is ultimately a good thing even though i am you know as as chris was joking about earlier i am also a little bit wary about one person having a ton of power but i don't know until feige does something that um that indicates that uh, the direction that he has in mind for the company is is the wrong one or um you know is uh I guess overstepping in any way, then you know more power to him. I think is is sort of how I feel, and I, I kind of feel weird saying that, but I I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. Anybody else have any uh, closing thoughts on Kevin Feige as the new chief creative officer of Marvel? I just feel that the guy who has all that power then used that power to give Taika Waititi unlimited platform for Thor, you know, to hire James Gunn, to hire Ryan Coogler, to make Captain Marvel. The person who's using his power to make those choices uh, is a guy who I think is using his power wisely. Uh, so we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. But I feel like his track record of of looking at the landscape and saying there are people, people and filmmakers out there who are not being served properly. Let me use my power and my my iconic company to make stories that matter for people who for years have been ignored by Hollywood. Is somebody who I have to support, and right now, and until he screws up, he, he has my backing. I, yeah, my blessing, Kevin Feige. Keep kicking ass. All right, so I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all the stories we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Before we go, let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, Jacob, let's start with you. I'm on Twitter, where I'm at Jacob S. Hall, and of course, slashfilm.com every day. Brad. I'm on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, always on Slash Film, and you can listen to my big stupid podcast called Go Flix Yourself, available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Chris? Uh, SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413, and I just want to do a quick plug for my still ongoing 31 Days of Streaming Horror column. I'm up to 15 now. I've written 15 of these. I'm dying. Please read them. <laughs> yes, I will link those in the show notes as well. Those are really great. So you're recommending one horror movie every day for the entire month of October, right? Right. One horror movie, and I'm telling you where you can stream it. So, you know, if you're looking for stuff out there to watch this Halloween season and, it, you know, not the same old, same old stuff, I'm trying really hard to pick obscure things, and I'm telling you exactly where and when you can stream them. So... Uh, hit it up. 
Awesome. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and uh, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, tell your friends, spread the word about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.